Hello and welcome to the So What podcast, in which political economic analyst J.P. Lantman discusses the issues uppermost in the minds of South Africans. You can find a written version of this content on J.P.'s website, jplantman.co.za. I am Ruda Lantman and I am your host. These first few recordings were done at our dining room table, but we will soon be moving into a studio. Hello and welcome once again to a recording to accompany JP's newsletter, this one dated the 26th of April 2022, under the title Connecting the Dots. It is going to be slightly longer than usual because the newsletter is slightly longer than usual. Maybe you want to listen to it in a few sessions. Maybe you want to pour, your gla- pour yourself a glass of wine and settle in. Why use the metaphor of dots and connecting the dots? It was Steve Jobs who said you can only connect the dots backwards. You cannot connect it forward. And I think that's absolutely applicable to where we are in South Africa in terms of political analysis. Uh, There are a lot of forecasts going around, a lot of predictions going around, a lot of comment going around. What I do in this newsletter is simply to focus on things that actually have happened. The dots are already on the page. We don't want to speculate about what the page will look like. The dots are on the page. So it's a backward-looking methodology, if you want. And we connect the dots, and then we see what the dots tell us. That's basically what I do in this newsletter. The first group of dots, if I can put it that way, concern macroeconomic policy, macroeconomic framework. What exactly does that mean? Macroeconomic policy refers to two things. First of all, monetary policy or interest rates, independent reserve bank, inflation, fighting inflation and so on. That's all monetary policy. And fiscal policy is the second leg second part of macro policy, and that refers to government finances. Now, in the most up-to-date growth theory that we have in the world, uh, that is one of the five critical elements of an economy that would like to grow. And that is you've got to have stable macroeconomic policy. In other words, stable monetary policy and stable fiscal policy. Now, uh, I think what has been done in South Africa in the last couple of years, if we connect the dots, are quite remarkable. If I can go to to monetary policy first, let's go back to the ANC's conference in December 2017 at NASREC. There was a resolution adopted that the South African Reserve Bank must be nationalized and it must become part of the public sector or it must be in government ownership. Also at that conference, there were all kinds of noises made about changing the inflation uh, targeting regime in South Africa. 18 months after the conference, in June 2019, Eismach Schule, who was then still Secretary General of the ANC, pushed the envelope a bit further. He issued a press statement to say that the government should pursue quantity uh, easing. He didn't get a quantitative, but he he got to quantity easing, and he said that should be government policy. Also in that time, ex-President Zuma issued a tweet in which he said, that quantity easing is indeed uh, government policy, and if a government doesn't implement that, the government can be recalled. He clearly made a threat there. You will recall that at the same time, the public protector, 
in her infinite wisdom, issued a report in which she said the uh, inflation targeting regime, regime in the country must be recalled and the mandate of the Reserve Bank must be changed. There was a huge amount of political pressure on the bank. If you connect those dots in 2017, 18, 19, you can see to what extent there was a total onslaught on the South African Reserve Bank and by implication on independent monetary policy. In June 2019, on precisely Tuesday, the 4th of June 2019, Ace Mahashula issued that statement of his, which prompted M Mr. Zuma's tweet and so on. 48 hours later, on Thursday the 6th of June, the top six of the ANC issued a statement from the Thule House to say, this is not the policy of the ANC, the position of the bank remains unchanged, the authority of the Minister of Finance to decide on the inflation target was reconfirmed, and that was put out as official government policy. Eisma Gesula then find himself in a terrible position that 48 hours after he issued a statement, he now had to issue another statement on behalf of the organization, and he is one of the top six had to sign it, uh, committing the ANC to the opposite of what he propagated. It was a clear, clear, clear victory for Mr. Ramaphosa for sound monetary policy. And I think we can put June 2019 down as the month on which the tide was turned on, on the Reserve Bank. Not the only important developments, there were also court cases, but that's a different set of dots. And that has to do with a legal fight. I'm focusing here on the political dots. Also in that statement of the 6th of June 2019, the top six said, look, it is the policy of the ANC that the bank should be in public ownership. But we realize that there's a cost involved in it. In other words, you would have to pay shareholders out. In our current fiscal situation, we do not have the money for that, and it's not prudent to pursue that option. So uh, that put the whole Reserve Bank thing to bed, so to speak. Now, note the dates here. We're talking June 2019. It was long before a thing called COVID. It was long before that disaster hit us. It was quite clear which way the political wind was blowing. So uh, if you look back, since uh, that time, since uh, June 2019, it's now almost three years later, the stature of the bank, the status of the bank has grown further. Its independence is more assured. We've really deflected or defeated that attack that we saw on the South African Reserve Bank. So that's what the dots on monetary policy tell me. If you look at fiscal policy, it's much the same story. And there, the turning point for me was in February 2019, more than three years ago, when the president in the State of the Nation speech that February said very, very clearly, quote, we will not spend our way out of our economic troubles, unquote. Again, that was before COVID. So that was not on the table at all, where he said, we cannot carry on in the way that we've been going. We've got to curb our spending. And that has been stuck to. Now, in 2020, of course, we got COVID and government expenditure increased considerably. But here is the benchmark. The economy shrank by about 6.5%. We now know looking back. At the time, government stimulation measures to try and keep the economy going came to about 5.5%. And that is within the rule of thumb. The rule of thumb is if, if the economy contracts by 5 or 10%, then you must stimulate by 5 or 10%. And that's precisely what, uh, what we've done. In fact, the one criticism many people make against the government on this particular dot is that we should have spent a bit more. 5.5% was not enough. We should have spent 6 or 7%. Whatever. 
that is the, the that is what the dot tells us. In 2019, also when the president made that speech, it was three months before the election, and the chattering classes were going ballistic about how we're going to see a splurge of spending. Looking back, what does the dot tell us? The dot tells us that in that election here, spending was only 0.3 percent more than the ceiling which was set by Treasury. I really don't think that's a catastrophe. In fact, I think it's quite an achievement. So if you look back at the COVID, you look back at the Natal unrest that we had in 2021, you look back at the load shedding that we had on top of uh, COVID, then I think the fact that government succeeded in staying the course of expenditure is no mean achievement. Now, how did that come about? People immediately want to say, oh, it's because there was a commodity boom and we got extra money from there and that helped us. That's quite right. There was a commodity boom, but before the commodity boom, in other words, in the first half of 2021, two other things happened. First, government took a very firm stance on civil service increases and broke their negotiated agreement with the unions on three years of guaranteed increases. Now, the political significance of this mustn't escape one. Ramaphosa was brought into power with the support of Kusatu, also others, but definitely Kusatu. Now he goes and he breaks an agreement which was negotiated with them, his government breaks it, and he says, we can't give that to you. That is not a sign of political weakness. That is not a sign of not looking after your, your fiscal expenditure. So that year, the, the increases were null. In the following year, the increases were kept to, the, kept to a minimum, and we will see what happens in 2022. But certainly the tough decisions to tackle civil service increases have been made and the consequences are working through. How do we know that? Because in April, Moody's changed their outlook for South Africa from negative to stable. So clearly they can see that the dots are lining up behind prudent fiscal policy. Then we had the lucky break of, of extra money from the commodity boom and again, Government didn't squander it. It was used to reduce the deficit. And of course, part of it was used to subsidize uh, people after the uh, Natal unrest. So I'm, I'm very happy if we look back that fiscal and monetary policy that we're meeting the requirements of what has to be done in that area. And, and that's why and that's what I think what the dots tell us. Something that your newsletter also points out and that I think we must actually remember is how close we came to... Uh, a very rough edge with uh, the attacks on Treasury. Mm. Very important point, and one which was confirmed this last week by the release of the fourth part of the Zondo Commission's report, where Mr. Zondo detailed the attacks on Treasury. You know, if you remember that weekend special, Des van Rooyen as Minister of Finance, if you remember that about 15 months later, a year later, both the Minister of Finance, Gordon, and the Deputy Minister, uh, Deputy Minister Jonas, were both just summarily dismissed. Zuma was really going for the Treasury. In the end, he failed. He may have come within a whisker, but the fact is he failed. And that's the important point to bring across. And I think what where we are now, uh, as the stature of the Reserve Bank has risen and become really unassailable, I think inside government, the stature of Treasury has likewise risen, and we can talk about that under structural reform to indicate to what extent that has happened. So I'm really very happy with what I said, that, that I think if you look back and you connect the dots on fiscal and monetary policy, uh, we've done well. Your next heading is structural reform, and that's the next uh, group of dots, if we can put it that way. Yes. 
But structural reform seems to me can mean almost anything to anyone. What what do you mean? What do you think the government means when Mm. they talk about structural reform? Yeah, it's a very it's a very good point. Uh, structural reform means different things to different people. On the left of our politics, it means take away the independence of the Reserve Bank, push up the budget deficit, print money to cover it, and so on. On the right hand side of our political spectrum, it deals with deregulate labour markets, ban unions. There mustn't be minimum wages, and you know all that kind of nonsense. What does government mean? Government has put down a very simple eight points or eight bullets, eight-point framework. The first one, which is monetary and fiscal policy, which we've already discussed. And the other remaining six, there are eight in total, fiscal monetary policy. The remaining six basically deal with introducing the private sector into what is called the network industries. And the network industries is telecommunications, uh, internet, that whole area, spectrum. It's uh, transport, railways and harbours, and it is infrastructure. There is an eighth element which we can talk about, and that is what you can call social employment. So those are the eight things that government understands under their policy. That's how I read their policy. And we can take them one by one. The most important one, because it's, it's happened already, is spectrum release. As you know, spectrum release was delayed for 10 years. For the first eight of the 10 years, because of political ineptitude and fighting between the minister and the regulator and so on, uh, U-turns that was made by the Zuma government, that was eventually sorted out after Ramaphosa came into power. The last two years, it was delayed by private sector opposition to the proposals for spectrum release. That has now also been overcome. The auction has taken place and 14.4 billion rand came into the treasury in payment for that. So that's, I think, a a, a huge dot. Just by the way, Ruda, we must just note that when it comes to telecommunications and internet connection and so on, it's not just the government. It's also players outside government who've put down important dots. Think of the Facebook consortium that's building a cable linking the whole African continent with the world. And there's the Google cable, which is also supposed to be finished uh, the end of this year, which will increase by 10 times the all the current capacity linking South Africa to the international internet world. Nothing to do with government, but also happening. So I think that and you spectrum release and so on, you look at quite big changes. Inside South Africa, MTN, Vodacom and Remgro subsidiary are working very hard to extend cheaper fiber connection into townships and rural areas at, at, at lower prices. All that will help to put South Africa on the front foot in terms of, of telecommunication. The second area is, uh, is transport, and they're basically railways and harbors. Now, again, just look back and get the long-term perspective. Uh, Porsche Darby, the uh, MD of Transnet, tells us, his her words on mine, that two years ago, Two years ago, the model was a state-run monopoly, a state-owned monopoly in railways and harbors. Now the policy is to allow the private sector in. It's a big change. Uh, The fact that it was brought about by circumstances, brought about by pressure, well, that is how life works. And there's two ways that you can deal with pressure. You can ignore it and try to stumble through, or you can change direction. Clearly, there's a big change in direction. Again, one must have a feeling here for the practical difficulties. Before you can allow the private sector into ports or railways, two things had to happen. You had to separate the operations of Transnet and Portnet from the regulatory function. 
they were basically judge and prosecutor, uh, if I can use that analogy, and you had to split those roles. Secondly, you had to split infrastructure from operations so that you can get a true measurement of what cost is. Then you know what to charge people who come and use the infrastructure. Those two things took about 18 months, two years. They've now basically been completed, and what has happened in the last uh, couple of months is a request for proposals was put out for a big new pier in the Durban Harbour. Uh, a request was put out for Kucha, and over the Easter weekend, just before the Easter weekend, a request was put out for a liquid gas terminal in Richards Bay. So you can clearly see which way Transnet is moving, or Portnet is moving. Uh, as far as railway lines go, at the beginning of April, Transnet Freight Rail opened up slots in the Gauteng Durban corridor for private operators to use. Now, here I just want to make a point. Uh, there's a huge amount of public uh, discourse going on about the fact that Transnet and private operators are very far apart under conditions and so on. Let's just stand back a little bit here. Uh, South Africa has got a long history. It's a 100-year-old history, more than 100 years of state monopolies in the network industries. It goes back to the days of South African railways and harbors. It goes back to the days of the South African post office, long before Telcom. So we have a, a centuries-old approach to these matters. Now you change it over from a state monopoly to private sector players participating. You've got to make new rules. You've got to develop new practices. What are those rules? Who must carry the risk? Who must pay for maintenance? Who carries the depreciation charge? Uh, what return will be a feasible return? Over what period? Two years, 20 years, 200 years? You've got to work these things out. They don't descend to you from heaven. We've worked them out in the case of toll roads. And how did Sunrail work it out? Well, Nazir Ali at the time brought everybody into the same room. The lawyers, the engineers, the builders, uh, the government, the regulators, the bankers who must finance everything. And between them, they sorted out the toll road model, which is working fairly well for South Africa. Now you'll have to go through a similar process now with railway lines. You'll have to go through a similar process with ports. And that's part of developing, moving over from a state-run monopoly to one in which the private sector participates. And I think this hysteria that we get uh, from the chattering classes, every time there's a kind of a disagreement, is also really an area that asks for us to grow up. I think you need a little bit of empathy with people's frustration because things are announced and then it takes two years before anything happens. So it is human to get frustrated. It may be human, but you should also know why it is taking two years. If you have to separate the regulator from the operator and you have to separate infrastructure out, that kind of thing, uh, you know, we also need empathy for that. Mm. Uh, the reality is that it takes time to develop new practices, and, and that's where we are. We don't live in a Mary Poppins world. No, we don't. The next thing on your list of uh, patterns of dots is energy reform. You have uh, spoken about this quite often, and there is a lot of information, a lot of, there are a lot of numbers mm. in this section. So I'm going to ask you to try and just uh, very broad strokes, and then we refer the listeners to a graph, which is on the website. 
Uh, yeah, absolutely. Look, in the last two years, I counted, I've written about energy seven times, explaining what I think is going to happen and what indeed is now happening. Uh, everything that we said will occur is, is proceeding. So it's quite gratifying from, from that point of view. I don't want to repeat any of that today. So all I do in my note is to focus on the recent load shedding. And here is the focus. We have load shedding in South Africa because we produce between 4,000 and 6,000 megawatts too little power. That's why we have load shedding. If we can wave a Harry Potter wand and tomorrow morning have 6,000 megawatts of extra power, there'll be no load shedding. So it is now very simple. Just look at what is being done. Just connect the dots on what is being done to produce that 6,000 megawatts. And as you say, there's a lovely graph which you have developed, which is uh, uh, in, in the text. And it basically tells us that that 6,000 deficit that we've got is at the moment being covered by 11,500 megawatts of new capacity that's being installed. There is the, the last of uh, Bitwindow 4, which is being connected to the grid this year, 500 megawatts. There is the emergency uh, power procurement, which is dominated by car powership. Forget about car powership. It doesn't look as if that deal will happen. But that was only 1,200 of 2,000 megawatts. There's 800 megawatts left over. So you can add that in. Then there is the announcement of October 2020 that municipalities can generate their own power. So far, only two municipalities uh, have made use of it. Johannesburg was the first. Cape Town has done it recently. That adds up to about 300 or 500 megawatts. More municipalities will follow, I'm quite sure. But again, it takes time to work through these processes. You know, you don't uh, wave your hand and then you have a municipality procuring power. The big, big game changer was in June 2021, when the president announced that you no longer need a license if you generate power up to 100 megawatts. The ceiling used to be one megawatt. Now, from one to 100 is an enormous jump. And not only that, the president also announced in that announcement that you can generate the power below 100 for yourself or anybody else. And you can sell it to anybody. This is a huge, huge change that took place. Something that we did predict in the seven times that we, I wrote about energy, but it has now happened. Now, you can look at the graph in the, in the piece. I'm not going to uh, repeat it all. But all these changes that has already been announced, the decisions that have been taken, we're busy with implementation, will add up to about 11,500 megawatts versus a four to 6,000 deficit. Now, just be careful, one megawatt of renewable power is not the same as one megawatt of base power. But again, be careful, two things are shifting that. And that is, if your deficit is six and you get 11 and a half, you, you, are, you know, you're covered to a large extent. And technology is also changing it. New storage technologies are coming in, which is making it possible for renewable operators to provide power 24 hours a day, uh, even if they make a, a use of renewable power. Near Postmasberg in the Northern Cape, there's a plant that is now run for, I think, 12 months, a solar plant, uh, run for 12 months, providing power 24 hours a day because of storage technologies that they've got. But I think you must make the point that, that this will be connected by 2025. Yeah. It's, it has been <clears throat> procured, but it hasn't. it is still being installed, as yeah, you say. Yeah, absolutely. Because it takes time to build a plant, then you've got to connect it to the grid, then you've got problems in the grid, you've got to sort that out. Uh, in general, you can talk about 24 months 
in some cases even a bit longer from from the date that you start until you actually connect to the grid. So this 11,500 on my cigarette box analysis uh, will be connected to the grid by 2025. Now that's still three years out. So that to me implies, unless something else changes, that we will have load shedding for another three years. But it also makes it very clear that load shedding will not be a permanent feature of our landscape. I think one should say that as well. Um, I don't think we're looking at a situation like Nigeria, for example, where they've now had load shedding for many, many years and people have just given up on the national system. Here, the national system is changing quite dramatically. And it's changing from one which is dominated by a state utility, a state monopoly, to one in which the private sector will operate. And by the way, talking about that, <clears throat> all the money needed for this 11,500 megawatts will come from private sector players. So you're talking massive investments that will take place in the economy. Already has taken place and will carry on taking place, pushing our investment numbers probably higher than what they were before COVID struck us. The next group of dots concern infrastructure. You've always been quite cautious about infrastructure because you said so many people had to agree on so many things. Yeah. Is that shifting? Yeah, I think it is shifting. Um, it's precisely right. Doing infrastructure where you mix public and private money and you've got, you know, private operators coming in, the kind of thing that we saw with toll roads, is quite a difficult thing to do. You need contracts, you need banking agreements, you need financial arrangements. Now, in the case of roads, we've worked it out. In other areas, we haven't worked it out. And some areas don't lend themselves to it. I don't think you can use, for example, private finance to do a school in a poor area. You know, it, it just doesn't lend itself to it. But a couple of things have happened. The first is, when the president became president, he pushed the idea of the infrastructure fund. It took three years to get that going. He started with it in 2018. By 2021, the thing was established and operational. In this year's budget, Treasury has allocated quite a few billion rand to it. I think the total for the period for the three years that the budget rolls is uh, 13 billion or more. And they've committed themselves to 100. Treasury has committed itself to 100 billion over 10 years. And the idea is that you mix in the infrastructure fund money from Treasury, from the taxpayer and from the private sector. Now, what has changed now is that the first seven projects have been approved by the infrastructure fund. The total investment will be about 21 billion, of which only 2.6 billion, a little bit more than 10%, is coming from the infrastructure fund or from the taxpayer. The rest is coming from private players and development institutions. Now, that tells you something about the ability of an infrastructure fund to leverage. If you can do 21 billion with 2.6 billion, then you're clearly in a new game. Now, it's the same story. You allow the private sector to come in to help to finance infrastructure. So I think that that was quite an important shift that took place. The second shift that took place is that the budget for the year that just ended is 22% higher in terms of government infrastructure spending than what it was in the previous year. And in fact, we're now approaching, we are now at the level where, where the rands being allocated are more than what it was before COVID. So there's clearly a comeback in terms of infrastructure spending. But I think the most important dot in this area of infrastructure, Ruda, is the dot where government last year said very clearly and unambiguously the state cannot do infrastructure. They have to involve the private sector. They have to develop skills and capacity. 
Now, that, that recognition is a little bit like, you know, when you're an alcoholic, the road to recovery begins with admitting that you're an alcoholic. And what is happening at the moment is both at the Infrastructure Fund and at the unit called Infrastructure SA, which is in particular the laws department, Treasury, through its technical advice team, is busy developing the capacity and the skills of people to build project pipelines. And that's why I think the, the dial is beginning to move here. We are not nearly as far advanced as we are in, in energy, but I think the movement is clear. So let's do um, a so what in the middle. What does all this mean? Why is it so important? Why do you write about it in such detail? Well, common sense tells you that if you if you allow the private sector into previous state monopoly areas, you would expect, in theory, an increase in investment, and you would expect, in theory, an increase in productivity. And that is exactly what treasury modeling has indicated. Uh, treasury modeling indicates that these changes that we've been talking about can add as much as 1.7% to annual GDP growth. Now, our growth rate up till now has been around about 1.5%. So if you can add 1.7, you basically double growth rate. You take your growth rate from 1.5 to 3.2. Uh, 3.2% growth is double the population growth rate of 1.6%. So you're now, you're now getting back on track. You're now getting back to where we were in the first 10, 15 years after democracy, where the economy grew much faster than the population. And that generates extra resources that can be used to develop. Basically, I think we are busy going back to where we, where we sort of ended, if I may use that word, in 2008. South Africa had a lovely run, also economically and politically, until about 2008, 2010. Then the Zuma era kicked in with full force, and we all know what happened there. Now I think we, uh, with a growth rate of three three percent, three and a quarter percent, double your population growth rate, we're going back to where we were before the Zuma era struck us. One thing that comes to mind for me, it sounds as if the famous or infamous trust deficit between the government and business or the private sector is being closed. I wouldn't uh, say that at this stage. Let's give it a little bit more time. The, the private sector, in my view, doesn't appreciate the fact that they've got really for the first time since Mandela, they've got a business-friendly president. I don't think that penny has dropped yet. If you look at some of the things that are being said by business leaders and so on, uh, they're not there yet. The government, on the other hand, doesn't have a full understanding yet of what it means to have the private sector participating. You know, what, what conditions, what payback periods, what return on capital, what carrying of risk is digestible and what not. So you've got problems on both sides. Business people don't appreciate what they've got in a business-friendly president, and the administration doesn't yet quite appreciate what it takes to run a business. So I think it'll, we, we'll have to slog a bit more to overcome that trust deficit. The last thing that worries the whole of South Africa, of course, is the unemployment. Um, is the government doing anything which will shift that? Well, as I said uh, earlier, one of the eight pillars, uh, seven of them deal with the economy. Uh, the eighth pillar deals with what I call social employment. And this is essentially employing people in all kinds of what you can call artificial ways. And not because that's a permanent solution. It's not, but because it brings temporary relief. 
And here, the most important one is public employment. In October 2020, when COVID was really, you know, at its most merciless, the government announced that 800,000 people will be employed in a public employment program. Now, these are not civil servants. Let's just be clear about that. When you say public employment, people immediately jump to civil service positions. That's not what it is. It's uh, positions which gets a stipend of about three to three and a half thousand rand a month. So it's not a civil service job. And it's usually temporary. Now, at the moment, the 850,000 people in this program, more than the 800,000 target, and there's money in the budget for the next three years to take that up to a million people. Now, if you have a million people in public employment, then uh, have you shifted the the numbers on the 12 million unemployed in the country? No, not really. But you are putting a lot of money through 3,500 rand a month. You're putting a lot of money into the poorest people of South Africa in an effort to help. Then there are a couple of other initiatives that uh, that was also launched under under this program. The one is uh, the SA Youth Mobi platform, which has got 2.3 million young South Africans registered on that platform, and 600,000 of them, 25%, have been placed in jobs. Then the uh, National Youth Service, which has been around for a long time but has, has completely collapsed, has been revitalized and they will probably employ 50,000 people this year. That is what uh, has been budgeted for and what is planned. Now, again, will 50,000 people change the 12 million unemployed? No, it won't. But it will help 50,000 households. It will help 50,000 people to start getting into the labor market. And so there are four or five of these initiatives, what I call artificial initiatives, but they help to get people into the labor market. That's the important point. In the end, there's no substitute. If you want to employ more people, if you want to bring that down that 12 million unemployed, you need more economy. You're not going to employ 10 million more people in the same size economy. You need a bigger economy to employ more people. And that is where the structural reform has come in. Until such time as the structural reform issues have, have kicked in and they start having an effect, you need these kinds of short-term relief measures to, to combat poverty and keep stability in the country. So if you step back and you look at the big picture, what are the, the main things that these dots tell you? I think the main thing that it tells me is a point that I've already made, and that is that I think we're going back to where we were in 2008-2009 at the end of the Mubeki period, when we had a long run, a successful run in our economy, where the economy grew faster than the population, where we increased incomes, and because we increased incomes, more money was available to be spent. I think we're going back there. We're leaving behind us the, the stagnation that we've had of the last couple of years. That That's the first point. The second point is, you know, it was Bill Emmett, who was the editor of The Economist. He's uh, now retired in... Uh, in Italy, I believe, who said that the journalist, like the instant analyst, is constantly at the risk of over-interpreting the short term and underrating the longer term. And I think there's a lot of that in South Africa. We are so carried away by the news headlines of the morning, never mind what will come this evening, that we, we run the risk of instant analysis and coming to the wrong conclusions. And that's where I think a longer-term view, which you can get by connecting the dots, is, is such an important uh, input. And I think the other thing that I want to say is it was at the second investment conference uh, in 2019, I think, 
where I was in the audience and I listened to the president and he made a comment which for me summarized what he was busy with. It was the beginning of his tenure, it was before COVID, but you can see that that's how he, that's how he governs. He said, there's an old saying that the man who moves a mountain begins by carrying away the small stones. A man who moves the mountain begins by carrying away the small stones. And I think that's what the Ramaphosa administration has been doing. They've been carrying away the small stones, which became bigger and bigger and bigger. And you see it beautifully illustrated in energy. You're beginning to see it in, in transport, in ports and railways. You've seen it in spectrum. I have no question that the stones will get bigger through a process of structural reform, and eventually we will move the mountain. Thank you for listening to the So What podcast. If you enjoy this content, please don't forget to leave a review and a rating, and please consider subscribing so you don't miss any future episodes. Also, tell your friends. Remember, you can find a written version of all JP's content at jplandman.co.za.